This Week in Retronauts, Turtles Seem Like Pond Scum. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Retronauts. I'm your host, Jeremy Parrish, and with me this week to talk about all things British, well, very, very specific things British, there's that dude as hey, usual. It's me, Bob Mackey, senior editor at usgamer.net. And also joining us from usgamer.net for a trifecta, a quorum, if you will, three out of five. Hello there, I'm Jazz Rignall, and I'm editor-at-large at US Gamer. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and to be here. We have called Jazz in for a very specific reason, and that specific reason is because we're still clearing out the Kickstarter request backlog, and our good friend Michael Lee – actually, I don't know Michael Lee. I've never met him. But he's a good friend because he supported us on Kickstarter, and he has requested that we talk about the history of Rare, including their pre-Nintendo days. And I can talk about some Nintendo Rare stuff – Oh, yeah, me too. But I was not there for the pre-Nintendo days because that mostly happened far across the ocean in the UK. But Jazz was over in the UK during those days and probably reviewed some of Ultimate Play the Game and Rare's pre-Nintendo stuff. Certainly did. I um, started off uh, as a, a wee whippersnapper playing um, some of the very, very early uh, Rare games when, in fact, they were called Ultimate Play the Game. Actually, Joe's wee, wee whippersnapper sounds like an early Rare game, <laughs> <laughs> like a platformer. <laughs> I think that was the sequel to School Days. I see. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, they started off as uh, – they're always a very kind of mysterious company and um, – they kind of burst onto the scenes unsuspectedly in, in, in 1983. Um, rumor has it, and I, and I think this is this is fairly accurate information, that the, 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 the stampers, Tim and Chris, uh, were actually uh, video game designers and uh, worked on um, uh, Konami's Gyrus, I believe. Um, but they decided to, to, to go solo, seeing the... Uh, the sort of the the early eighties uh, microcomputer boom of the UK, and um, so they created a, a game called Jetpack on the ZX Spectrum, and that really was quite the revelation. So you mentioned something about Gyrus. Um, can you talk a little more about their involvement with that? What exactly did they do? Um, I don't know that much about the, the early arcade games sort of development. Um, but you know, rumor has it that they, they worked um, as ACG computing, and that they basically had some sort of involvement in in some Konami games. And it's not very well. So documented. not not importing them, but in actually developing the original games. Yeah, actually developing the original wow. games. I did not realize that. That's where their kind of uh, expertise came from. Because if you two look... minutes into the podcast and already <laughs> knowledge bombs are just <laughs> dropping, I need to shield my eyes. <laughs> And basically, the the thing with with Jetpack is it was way, 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 way ahead of the game. I mean, this this 1983 was a period where a lot of games were sort of marketed as you know programmed in 100% machine code because some games were still programmed in in, in BASIC. Mm-hmm. And you know, along came Jetpack, which was uh, it was a single screen shooter. 
Um, you controlled the eponymous Jetman, and you flew around the screen, picking up pieces of a rocket that you would assemble, and then uh, once the rocket was assembled, you could jump inside and, and, and fly to the next level. Um, kind of reminiscent a little bit of a sort of a combination of Defender and Joust. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But but what made it so incredible was the fact that, you know, graphically it was way ahead of the competition. Um, the Stampers had a really, really good understanding of, of how to kind of get the best out of the ZX Spectrum's quite limited graphical capabilities. It could only... Um, actually uh, displayed display two colors per uh, 8x8 square, I think it was, or 16x16 square. And um, they, they just very cleverly kind of programmed around that to create what felt like a you know an arcade-quality game that really was um, kind of predated NES games in many respects in just the graphical style, very bold, very simple, um, but very, very smooth. Yeah, I mean, if you if you compare the work that they were doing for the Spectrum in 1982-83 when they first started, um, it really felt different from anything you were seeing on other consoles at the time, like ColecoVision or Atari 2600, where it tended to be like blockier, stick figure type uh, creations. Their 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 style was always more cartoonish and very detailed, despite the uh, the limited attributes available for the limited palette available for the Spectrum. I assume when the remake came out, uh, which is now retro, I guess, that uh, Americans didn't know it was another game before. It, it felt like a nostalgia piece for people that grew up with Jetpack, that uh, that XBLA remake. Yeah, I actually never saw that. So hmm. It was so. like 2005 probably or 2006. Um, was it that long ago? Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah, I remember uh, playing it. I might have reviewed it. I can't even remember. It's been so long. <laughs> um, it was a very simple game. I, th- I think the thing to, to sort of remember is is that that at the time it, it was being programmed on the there were two ZX Spectrums, a, a 16K version and a 48K version, and um, it was it was a 16K game, so it was even kind of more limited. Um, but it was just so well done that you know people didn't really care whether it was sixteen or forty eight k. They just bought it for their computer, whatever they had, and uh, I believe it sold around about three hundred thousand copies. Which mm. you know, when you consider that this was a cassette manufactured, you know, by Ultimate themselves, and and uh, you know, just sort of uh, sold through their own channels uh, initially, I think they made bank out of that. Yeah, I mean, um, that that was back when. Piracy was a pretty common thing for those cassette games. Uh, I know that a lot of publishers, their games were much more widely played than they were sold. And if I'm not mistaken, um, Ultimate Play the Game tended to price their games a little higher. Maybe not initially with Jetpack, but I guess maybe the success of Jetpack emboldened them to raise the price. Because I think the standard price, the the going price for Spectrum games was like six pounds. Yeah, that was. And they, uh, they bumped it up to ten. Yeah, the the. Um I think Jet Jet uh, Jetpack sold for five fifty, which was kind of the standard. But um, shortly thereafter, uh, as soon as they started producing forty eight k games, um, they were ten pounds. But uh, the thing that you know Ultimate is very very well known for is is the quality of the the packaging. They they produced 
beautiful illustrations, very minimal uh, boxes, you know, at a time when a lot of people would sort of pile up the front cover Microsoft style with all these bullet points of mm-hmm. things that, that that were important about the game. You know, these were just minimal, very beautiful um, cassette boxes, uh, sort of premium sized cassette boxes, uh, often containing, you know, little pieces of art and, and uh, uh, postcards and things like that. And, that, you know, it just kind of gave it this extra special feel about it. So they kind of mimicked the, uh, like, the feelies of Infocom games? Absolutely. Or was, was Infocom, Infocom even doing that by that point? Uh, I, I know that was something that, you know, you, you saw in, in, in some of the later games, 83, 84, but I don't know when Infocom started cramming their boxes full of stuff. But they, yeah, they certainly were doing that if, 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 if around about the same time, um, certainly before. And, uh, you know, you just had these beautiful cassette boxes that would look great on, on, on your shelf. And of course, being cassettes, like you said, you know, uh, kids would make their own personal backups and share them amongst friends. But um, but even so, these these games still sold a tremendous amount of copies. And uh, this being cassette games, that means they had to fit in the 16K of RAM because uh, I'm sure the loading time was tremendous on those. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, the, the Spectrums were not horrifically bad for, for, for loading speed times. I mean, you're talking about four to five minutes uh, versus the sort of the Atari 800 games that would take 20 minutes to load. Good and, God. <laughs> and then would drop out at about the 18th minute and you wouldn't realize until it kind of just sort of the tape stopped and auto shut off and then there was no game. And we, and we complain about installing games. Like, I got to wait 10 minutes and then it's installed forever? Like, no, yeah, it used to be a lot worse. But consoles were an escape from that. Yeah. And now there's no escape. <laughs> yeah, so so the um, I, I think Jetpack kind of set the tone for Ultimate Play the Game's creations, which was uh, fast and fluid and addictive and also very, very technologically impressive. Um but but like you said, they're they're a very mysterious company, and I know that manifested in weird ways, like the fact that they actually developed games in a different order in which they released them. Hmm. Um, that that seems to be kind of a famous story around uh, Night Lore and yeah. Saber Wolf. Yeah, they were very 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 smart company, and. You know, I mean, after Jetpack, they produced three other 16K games. Um, which was a sort of a, an arcade uh, game where you uh, flew around a screen um, um, spraying DDT on ever-growing plants and uh, there's a, an overhead scrolling kind of racing game called Trans Am uh, and, and a sort of a, a funny little game called Cookie uh, involving uh, picking up uh, like ingredients and things, um, sort of an odd, well, not kind of like Burger Time without the platform. Um, all of those were received very well, not quite as successful as, as Jet uh, Jetpack. But then they moved on to Lunar Jetman, which was uh, the first 48K game. And basically it kind of expanded on, on Jetpack and included the same kind of concepts of assembling a rocket. But uh, you'd actually drive around in the craft and you could get in and out of this like, little buggy. Um, and again, just a, a brilliant piece of programming uh, you know very very smooth uh, very arcade like um, you know continued to sort of build up this sort of mythic level of of, of sort of uh, uh, sort of a- anticipation for the next game um, and that was attic attack which was a sort of uh, 
I guess a platform arcade adventure, a very sort of very prototypical Metroidvania type game, mm, perhaps. Kind of um, uh, Manic Miner, not Manic Miner, but um, Jet Set Willy ish. Yeah. The same kind of setup. Sort of, uh, you know, viewed from overhead, but but kind of uh, felt like a platform game. Um, single screen, or rather flick screen, as they were called back then. Mm-hmm. Um, big map to to to, walk, to sort of wander around. That really set the, the the scene for their next really big game, which was Saber Wolf. Um, oh, yeah. But at that point, apparently, if uh, legend is correct, they had uh, the game Night Law already in the bag, which was. Um, the very first isometric 3D game mm-hmm. and um, using uh, filmation technology, as they called it. Um, and that was a, another sort of a flick screen uh, adventure. And they looked at the game and realized that it was so far ahead of everything else that they could actually sit on it. And so they instead produced Saber Wolf, which was another sort of overhead uh, viewed uh, arcade adventure. Um, big map where you'd wandered around the forest and had to pick up things and, and, and beat monsters and find the exit. Um, and that sold just ridiculous. I think it was sold about half a million copies. Um, was incredibly popular. Um, and then, of course, then Saber Wolf was released in 1984. 80, uh, Saber Wolf 84, and then Night Law was late 84, and mm. so not, not early 85, as I was going to say. The idea of of a developer making a game that's so far advanced <laughs> that they just sit on it so that they can publish other games, like, that's it's just crazy. Like, it, it's a totally different, I guess, ecosystem of video games back then than now. It's like, incredibly shrewd, I would well, say. Well, I mean, it's, it's that, but the the costs you have to sink into creating a video game these days are so enormous that you mm, need to yeah. recoup those costs ASAP. I, I can't imagine any studio saying, wow, we just really created a, a <laughs> you know, total masterpiece here. Let's publish it next year and, and run some other stuff first. Like They'd want to get that out on the market and you know, get the get as much money back as quickly as possible. And, and some companies want you to pay for part of the game first, <laughs> yes, which is the opposite approach. Right. Well, it showed a great deal of balls just to, to be able to sit on a concept and and be confident that nobody else was going to come up with the same concept and, and, and beat them to the punch. Um, but nobody did, and you know they they were right to do that because really when when Night Law came out and and really did change the face of of the sort of the isometric three D arcade adventure game, you just look at the amount of clones that came after it. I mean. It, it, I, th- I think that there's at least some say that Night Law is the most cloned concept of all time. Hmm. Mm, more so than Doom? Uh, apparently so, yeah. I mean, because when you look at the, uh, the sort of the mid 80s um, ZX Spectrum software market, and in fact, you know, a lot of the micro markets um, like the Commodore 64 and the BBC and, and, and Co., there were so many. Isometric games like Head Over Heels and there was a Batman game. And it, yeah, I'm familiar with Batman and Head Over Heels, but I didn't know there were that many more. Yeah, there was yeah. you know variants of, of of that kind of game. I mean, even uh, Ultimate, you know, kind of copied their own concept and 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 produced Alienate was another kind of game that was just basically the same kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, and they, and they really. Uh, you know, leveraged the technology that they built and 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 just just kept cranking games out. 
I really do associate that kind of game with a, a British developer because whenever I, I used to read, was it Retro Gamer, the UK retro gaming magazine? Mm-hmm. Whenever when I used to live by bookstores that would carry magazines, um, they would always do a retrospective, and it's like I would see these isometric games. I'm like, wait, these are all different games? Like there were there were this many of these because I think in America, like we got the odd isometric game, and they were never a hit. Yeah, like we got Solstice, like Solstice, and, uh, Equinox, Landstalker. Um, I, mean, I couldn't wrap my head around like how to control the characters in those things. Like no, they, I, they never I, felt good to me. But I mean, I if, beat Solstice back in the wow, day. Wow, jeez, <laughs> that's impressive. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that we only got a little hint of. Right. We definitely did not see nearly the number that apparently the UK did. Yeah, that that was that was just a ridiculous more, more cloned than Super Mario Brothers. I think that could very well be a, a whole episode. <laughs> Man, that would be a death match right oh there. Oh, my gosh. Night Lore versus Super Mario Brothers. You know, but, I mean, if you, if you consider sort of if, if Night Lore is the root of, of the isometric game and how many isometric games there there are, I mean, you know, is is uh, something like Diablo a clone of Night Lore? I mean, technically it is. Hmm. Hmm. If, if you're talking, like, perspective, sure, but... I mean, if you really want to go that far, like, is every space shoot 'em up a clone of Space Invaders? I don't know. It's 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 an interesting uh, it's an interesting claim. I don't know that I quite buy it, but I also admit that I was not there for the glut of uh, isometric platformers that appeared in the in the eighties. So I will defer to you on this one. Yeah, I remember you know when at that point I was working on on magazines and uh, the, the 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 ZX Spectrum guys would be oh no not another isometric <laughs> game to review you know it really was quite it's ridiculous like a, another FPS. So I, I guess that's probably about as much as we can say about Ultimate Play the Game. Like they they made a few really significant games, but uh, I, I guess more of us would have had to have been there to be, really be able to gush about. Oh, remember that one part in uh, in Night Lore? Remember that one room with the puzzle? I, I'm afraid that I don't have that mm-hmm. uh, that experience. Um, but you know, like you said, if, if isometric games are sort of the progeny of Night Lore, then Think about all the Infinity Engine games uh, and something like Boktai, Lunar Nights, like Kojimo is doing that. Uh, it's, it, I, th- I, I think you can make a case for um, for that game being very influential. But yeah, I think um, if, if you know, I did I did some reading on the company uh, from a few different sources in, in the course of putting together this episode, and apparently, uh, rare kind of pulled a double whammy. They like really, really shrewdly sort of reinvented themselves. Um, I, I guess, you know, their success was enough that the much larger U.S. gold started sniffing around and was like, hey, we'd like to buy your stuff. <laughs> and they said, mm, okay. So 
if, if I'm not mistaken, Rare actually began as a spinoff of Ultimate Play the Game, like a label under which they were developing software to, to publish for Ultimate Play the Game so that when, uh, when you know, U.S. Gold took over the company, they were buying basically the properties uh, and maybe the tech, but not the talent, not the people. Like they were That's all correct. kind of shuttled off into Rare. So it's uh, kind of like – well, you haven't seen Mad Men, but but the when they they sell the ad agency, but all the the talent goes to another agency. It's uh, kind of flim flaming them, getting their cake and eating it too. Maybe they realize Ultimate Play the game was too much of a mouthful. It's like rare. <laughs> it's one syllable. It's clean. We got it. I mean, Let's they go. could have just truncated it to Ultimate. Yeah, we are Ultimate Games. That's, I, I that don't know a good. more a, a clumsier game developer name than Ultimate Play the game. Maybe Infogrames. Uh, no, no. T N N. Think of needs of notice for human being. Ah, uh, that's that would be it. What do they develop? Uh, Umihara, Umihara oh, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah that's worse. <laughs> Maybe it sounds better in it. Japanese. No, that's that's their actual name. It's uh. TNN, Think of Needs of Notice for Human Being. Or the Nashville Network. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Rare were very clever. I mean, you know, they basically offloaded these, you know, very big name games and US Gold got to release a bunch of compilations and then they could use the 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 ultimate play the game name for for their own games and they released... A few games, but they they were just terrible, you know, shovelware basically with with the, with the ultimate name on it, and it, it, remarkable how quickly the sort of the it just vanished off the face of the earth, basically. And most people just thought that you know ultimate had gone out of business and were gone forever, and and that was it. And 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 nobody, and you know, and I was working in the industry at this time, and and we just weren't aware of it. But the Stampers had seen what was going on over with Nintendo. They'd, they'd, they'd been to CES. They'd seen the you know the sort of the death of the American market, and they just looked at the NES and went, "We want to be making games for that because that's going to be the next big thing." Yeah, I mean that's that was really forward thinking of them because in 1985 there was no guarantee not only that the NES would be a hit in America. But even that retailers would even want to deal with it. I mean, it had to go through that whole test run in, in uh, fall of 1985 before it entered the broad market in 86. And the fact that the Stampers were looking at a Japanese console making its entrance into the United States, that's a very like wide-ranging international outlook that was, I think, much more difficult to do back then just because the world was you know bigger. It wasn't as interconnected with networking and the internet. So... You really have to give them credit for that. But the the story of how they got their Nintendo contract uh-huh. and became developers is, is pretty impressive. And I think it says a lot about uh, not only their, their forward-thinking ability, but just their raw talent, which is that um, they basically reverse-engineered NES games and figured out how the hardware worked without documentation. They just you know picked it apart on their own and came to Nintendo and said, check out what we can do. And Nintendo was like, yeah, okay, cool. Why don't you make some games? Um, I think the first NES game that they published was actually for Nintendo. It was a, the Nintendo published uh, downhill racing game Slalom. So I believe the arcade version was first. Was that an arcade game? I Yeah, actually, the arcade by my, in my mall had the stand-up Slalom game, and it had, like, the ski poles and everything. Oh, like, okay. That's how I remember that game, yeah. I and did not know that was an arcade conversion. Yeah, the dates I have have that as 86 and NES as 87, but this could be incorrect. But I know it was an arcade game. No, yeah. I believe that that's kind of was was kind of them going back to their arcade 
you know, sort of, they obviously had some sort of connections with Japan because they'd, they'd worked with mm. with Konami before. Yeah, knowing knowing mm. that they had worked yeah. with Konami solves a big part of the whole puzzle here. Like the fact that they had those those connections and roots, like that that makes a lot more sense. Because otherwise, just as a standalone title, it's like, how did they know? But you know, how did they know that the NES was going to be this this runaway hit? But I think by that point, Konami was already a third party publisher for NES, so. Maybe you know they had friends at the company who were like, "Hey guys, check this out. This is the big thing over here. It's exploding. It's millions and millions of units sold. It's the biggest thing ever." Well, also one of the people that I worked with um, at, at Newsfield Publications, uh, I worked on Zap sixty four magazine, the Commodore magazine, and, and he worked on on, on Crash, the, the the ZX Spectrum magazine. Um, he actually got the chance to visit um, Rare at that point, and. Uh, you know, he was actually seeing the the, the, the slalom game, and he'd seen. Uh, I think it was RC Pro Am, and 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 had taken some pictures of it. Uh, just some of the graphics that they were developing, and they were using very early kind of three uh, D sort of motion type capture, sort of a rotoscoping effect. Um, you know, which kind of became a real hallmark of of some of those um, rare early rare games. And you know, he he was saying that. You know, they were working on some kind of an arcade game, although he couldn't tell what it was. Um, but actually, it turned out that it was the NES. He just didn't didn't realize they just had these very big big boxes that they'd sort of built that that had this technology in them, uh, and they kind of looked like arcade machines. And I guess they were producing some some arcade machines for Nintendo, but mostly they were uh, uh, producing cartridge games. Yeah, I don't know, um, and maybe I should know this, but I don't know what the first ever Western-developed NES game release was. Hmm. But if it wasn't Rare's Wizards and Warriors published by Acclaim, then that was one of the absolute first because I think that was 1987. Uh, And, you know, the NES didn't show up in the broad American market until early to mid-1986. So it it took a while for, you know, the, the licensors to come in and... Initially, Acclaim and LJN and, and the other American publishers who jumped in early uh, were subcontracting their games to like Atlas and uh, other – Tose, I guess uh, – other Japanese companies that already had kind of this background with uh, with the NES or the Famicom. But uh, yeah, I, th- I definitely think the first Western-developed games – I played on NES were all by Rare. It was, you know, Slalom, RC Pro-Am, and Wizards and Warriors, which was, if I'm not mistaken, and, and someone I'm sure will write in to correct me on this, the first Western-developed and published game on NES. Like, up until that point, it was all very based in Japan. So that's that's a pretty significant milestone. And even if they weren't the first, they were right up there at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And if I remember it, uh, Wizards and Warriors was uh, very similar to... Uh, an ultimate game called Underworld, which is a platform game. You're jumping mm-hmm. around a castle, you know, uh, avoiding things. Um, same kind of game, basically. Same kind of technology. So it makes me wonder if they just leveraged some of their expertise for for that. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, you know, it makes sense to jump into a new system, new technology, a new market by kind of drawing on what had been a success in the past and what you knew how to do. Um, that series kind of took its own direction and became kind of Metroidvania-ish before 
abruptly disappearing after a sort of disappointing Game Boy sequel. Yeah, that's right. It just but, it's gone. And now there's uh, another. There was another franchise this past decade called Withers and Warriors that had nothing whatsoever to do with hmm. with Rare's game. But yeah, that was one that I picked up in part because the box art was so interesting. Like it was very colorful. It had a lot of purples and golds in it, but it was you know this sort of. Um, it looks like not a, quite a Boris Vallejo style. It was much more ethereal than that. But looks you know, like a D and D module box or something. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. Have like stuff in it. It just looked D&D. different than everything else on the shelf, and it seemed interesting. So I picked it up, and uh, it's a it's an odd game, but but pretty okay. I like. It. Yeah. Yeah, from that point on, I believe Rare became the single most prolific NES developer. Yeah, I, uh, maybe maybe Tose would be out there, but they don't really get credit for everything. Whereas Rare, would, you know, they would they would always have a credit show up on the title screen. Not to exaggerate, but I'm looking at the uh, the list of games they developed. It's like 40 online. games or something. It's roughly like five percent of the NES's American library. Mm-hmm. I would say that's not even an exaggeration. It might it might be like six percent. Yeah, the quality of Rare's game. Uh, was kind of all over the place. Yeah. It was, you know, they would they would make the the super high quality stuff like, you know, Wizards and Warriors or RC Pro Am, Cobra, Tri- Cobra Triangle. But then they would also do like these licensed board games or or uh, quiz Taboo. show games. Taboo is not even a game. Yeah, it's just like what what is Taboo? It's classified as non game on Wikipedia. So take that Taboo. Oh, well. Are you looking at Wikipedia again? It, it's a list of all, things. Oh my I'm, god! I'm all the, at a list all of the stereotypes are true. I know. We're terrible. <laughs> I'll ask the the wizened old sage that gives us video game information yes. next time. Yoda, tell us. Uh, what else? Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Also garbage, but I like the music. Yeah, I mean, they were, like I said, all over the place. But they must have expanded as a company considerably from, from the ultimate play the game days because, I mean, the NES lifespan in the U.S. was seven years, uh, effectively. And for them to make, what was it, like 40 games? Roughly, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's, for the that's, NES alone, yeah, right. That's quite a few, um, and I think after Battletoads, they pretty much jumped over to Super NES development and mm-hmm. Genesis. So, so kind of truncate that from like 1987 through 1991. That's like ten games a year. That's a lot of games. There are some really late NES games like Battletoads and Double Dragon. Oh, and, right. Did um, they develop that? I thought Beetlejuice. That was, that was them. Yeah. Oh, okay. I yeah. thought that was Technos. Nope. They hmm. got Double Dragon folks from Technos for some reason. Uh-huh, somehow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think they were being published by American Technos or Technos America or whatever. It says Trade West. Oh, Trade West. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Trade West did um, uh, Double Dragon, Double they, Dragon, yeah. and Battletoads. So they, you know, they were all kind of under the same roof, right? So I guess they just were like, okay, yeah, you have the rights to these. It was kind of like Crazy Auto became this Pac Man. <laughs> I don't know. And then Trade West fought Data East in the Great Video Game War. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it is interesting to see some of the games that kind of drew on their ultimate play-the-game legacy on NES. Like, they did quite a few or, or several isometric games, even if they weren't the platformers. RC Pro-Am was a racing game from that isometric perspective. And Cobra Triangle was like a boat combat game. Kind of racing, but kind of action-y. Kind of a – it doesn't really fit into a niche, really. 
what was the snake game that snake I, rattle and roll snake yeah. rattle and roll oh my god I used to love that although mm-hmm. a trademark of all of those games that they were just bastard hard yeah yeah, yeah Wizards and Warriors is, is kind of interesting because it's not bastard hard like when you die you just you hit continue and you pick up right where you left off like that's probably the only reason I ever oh, beat that game. That. Yeah, it's it's uh, surprisingly forgiving, especially for a game of that vintage. But um, uh, Captain Skyhawk is also <coughs> isometric shooter, right? Am I thinking of the right game? It's sort of like um, what's the game I'm thinking of? Could you could you say that again? Oh, ca- uh, Captain sneezing. Skyhawk. Oh, just start over. Oh, uh, Captain Skyhawk is another isometric game. It's like an isometric shooter. I don't think you control verticality, but it's portrayed from the like isometric perspective. I'm pretty so it's sure. not like Zaxxon. I don't. I got. I, I wish I had played this ahead of time, but um, yeah. I never played that. I always got that kind of muddled in my brain with Air Fortress, which I realized was a totally different kind of game. But when I saw them on the shelf, for some reason, I just assumed Air Fortress, Captain Skyhawk, same thing. So I don't actually know what Captain Skyhawk is like. Uh, it's somewhat good. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it's bad. I, I can't. I can't. I can't commit to anything right now. It's been way too long. But uh, <laughs> sorry, folks. Yeah. So, so they were responsible for a lot of the the game show video games like Jeopardy, Anticipation, Wheel of Fortune. Uh, none of which have a particularly good reputation. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like. I feel like um, they kind of occupied the same niche in a way as WayForward does today. Uh, not that WayForward pushes the bounds of technology, but you know, WayForward has its passion projects that it really puts a lot of heart into, and then it has the sort of like contract work that pays the bills and keeps the lights on. I think there was a lot of that going on with Rare at the time. Yeah. And I mentioned in the Roger Rabbit mentioned that it has good music, and that's one thing. Even the bad Rare games have good music because of like people like David Wise. Like they come from that tradition of the the kind of things we associate more with chiptunes these days, but their music did not really sound like NES music, like Japanese composed NES music. It really felt like that, like, plunky, like, Tetris block flipping, like, Commodore music or whatever, you know? Mm. I was going to say, I mean, that's 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 the British heritage there, really. You know, the Commodore 64 was a, a real hotbed of, of competitive um, musicians um, trying to outdo one another uh, throughout the sort of the mid-'80s. And I think you just had... By by the sort of the mid to late eighties, you had s- such great expertise in the UK that could really push the SID chip in the Commodore sixty four, um, you know, to its absolute limits. And you just saw that sort of transition to to the NES, and 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 you got these sort of very Western sounding soundtracks that often had you know sort of guitars and and little tiny snippets of uh, samples that that you know made them you know sound pretty incredible for, for, for compared to what else was out at the time. Yeah, like the Beetlejuice soundtrack. Like, who wanted a Beetlejuice game in 1991? Nobody. It wasn't very good. I have the soundtrack in my head just because, like, those songs are really good. I listen to them outside of the game because the game is bad. So, Jazz, did you play a lot of um, Rare's NES-era games, uh, given that the the NES wasn't really that big a deal in, in the U.K.? Yeah, we, we saw most of the sort of the, the core NES games were released, you know, the, the Battletoad, Snake, Rat and Roll, RC programs. Um, those were all released. I, I think anybody that got the rights to those in the UK kind of realized what they had. Oh, it's a rare game. Oh, that's the, the, the ultimate play the game. And, 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 you know, by that time, you we'd begun to figure out sort of what was go, what had been going on over at Rare. And, and in fact... You know, they were one of the quietest, most publicity shy development companies 
of the era. No, they still are. Uh, yeah, They've always uh, been that way. Of, of perhaps of all time indeed. And, and they were incredibly secretive and they just didn't give a toss about the fact that, um, you know, they were by far the most uh, prolific and, and successful British developer. They didn't really care about making any kind of noise about that. They were just happy to be who they were. And, um, and uh, you know, you just began to see little things on, on on sort of games that were great. You know, oh look, it says rare there. That must that, that's them. Holy crap! And I think um, you know at that point there there was almost a a little bit of a rush to sort of unearth these kind of these golden rare games and and, and release them in across Europe before the the Super Nintendo came along and sort of you know destroy the market. Was there like a a sense of I don't know betrayal? In the 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 fact that there was this company that was basically like the you know the leading uh, spectrum developer, all of a sudden jump ship over to NES and focus primarily on the American market. It's funny. I think in a way, I mean, it's going to sound super fanboyish, but <laughs> but you know, playing the, getting the chance to sort of play rare games again, we were so happy that that, that, that to sort of you know rediscover the rare of, uh, as you know as what were ultimate play the game that you know but it was just like holy crap these guys are still around this is just you know the best thing and um and so there was no kind of thought about like what the hell happened to them that that started to sort of um the question started to be asked probably sort of by the the mid 90s just like hang on a sec what what did happen between kind of probably 19 1987 1986-87 when they sold the rights to, to US Gold um, to about kind of 1989 when we started seeing games from, from Rare coming out. And, you know, people just started putting two, two, two and two together and realizing, oh, they, 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 they just left the British you know, industry and went to Japan and America very, very cleverly Two years before most of the smart money started to figure out that 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 you know the British microcomputer market was dying, mm. that the you know Atari ST and the Amiga computers were not really going to um, be anywhere near as big as the ZX Spectrum and and the Commodore sixty four were. Mm. Yeah, it it does seem obvious in retrospect, but you know at, at the time I, I realized the the eight bit uh, console market was not. It really didn't exist that much in in the UK. It was just kind of this thing that was there, but was really sort of in the background. So it, it took some perspicacity to to kind of make that that uh, that jump. Yeah, I mean, incredibly smart uh, business people, and just amazing vision to really to be able to look at the marketplace. And you know, when you think about the time when they did make this move. They just sort of they were in the process of selling half a million copies of things like Night Law, and they just turned their back on 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 it and just said, you know, we think that the smart money is going to move over to Japan. That's where uh, you know you're going to see a lot of great opportunity, and uh, they just they just disappeared off the face of the planet, basically. Meanwhile, 
as someone who didn't know the history behind them, uh, in the early days of the NES, I got them confused a lot with Square because I would see Rare on the title screen and or Rare Coin It sometimes and then Square. And uh, I guess because I I noticed that they rhymed, I just assumed they were sort of the same thing. But <laughs> What was the Coin It thing? I, I always I, wanted to I don't know. know. Like, is that like an expression or help me out, somebody? Anyone know? Uh, I don't know why it said Rare Coin It. Hmm. That was... Uh, they did have a couple of different sort of uh, company names that they worked under. There was the Ashby de la Zouche Computer Graphics, I think it was, something like that. That was That's something that they used in their early days, whether that was their kind of arcade division or, or, or what. Um, you know, because they're so sort of little known that, that you know, there's a, there's a lot of mystery that still surrounds, you know, their, their various sort of... Uh, uh, persona. Yeah, I was I was wondering because I do remember Rare Coin it being on the title screen of Slalom, which started out as Bob said as an arcade game. So maybe Coin it was a reference to the fact that that game started as an arcade title, and that was like their arcade conversion mm. division or something. I don't know, but um, I, I think also because like the first Square game I ever played was Rad Racer, which kind of had the same sort of general vibe. I feel as. Uh, as a lot of rare games that I played at the time. Yeah, in terms of like it being a technical showpiece. Yeah, like Slalom, Rad Racer. And, you know, Rad Racer was actually programmed by Nasir Gibelli, who is, uh, I want to say Iranian? I, I probably got that wrong. He's from somewhere in the Middle East, and I can't remember exactly where. But um, So, you know, it, it wasn't like, even though it was a square game, it wasn't, uh, to some degree, it wasn't like as, as Japanese as most square games were. He He had a big influence on the look and feel of that game. Um, and also, I think um, 3D World Runner was published by Acclaim, who did a lot of uh, rare yeah. games. So there was, in, in my brain, and probably nowhere else in the world, there was this sort of conflation <laughs> between rare and square. But uh, it's just kind of one of those odd little side notes of the of the early days when I didn't know anything about video games. I think they meant to confuse you because I'm sure you'll get to this, but I don't mean to steal your thunder, but like they really limboed under Nintendo's regulations or maybe Nintendo raised the bar for them, you know, like, come on guys, come in, come under, you know, like only the, only so many games can be published per year, but they, they were just like, uh, well, they were developers, a right? Yeah. Right. The, so that didn't apply to them. I mean, mm. it was, that was, that was on acclaim technicality, I guess. Right. Yeah. Like acclaim could publish five rare games a year, but rare could make as many games for as many publishers as it wanted. Uh, so far as I know, the uh, the annual release limitation was on publishers, not developers. So mm-hmm. I don't think Nintendo really cared who made games as long as uh, they were kind of controlling and limiting the, the quantities. But um, definitely the, the sort of high point of Rare on NES was Battletoads, which was uh, Nintendo hyped that up heavily, even though it was published by a third party. Like that, w- that was kind of their, I-, I guess, the NES's big technical showcase. Right as uh, the Genesis was starting to hit, mm, um, for sure. and just a little bit before the Super NES arrived. So that was kind of their like, don't change the system sort of argument. You, you don't have to go to Genesis. Look at this crazy game. It's it's even got amphibians. You love Ninja Turtles, right? <laughs> well, here's some amphibians, it was, and they've got big fists. It was very in-your-face, like, Sega-style, like, this guy's named Pimple, and this is Zitz, and that's Rash, and they're going to, like, fight some dominatrix, and they have giant fists and weapons, and they have super cartoony, exaggerated, like, um, attacks and things. Like, yeah, it was really like a kind of like a Sega move to me. Yeah, but that, that game was just technically amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, I, I feel like maybe the fact that 
Rare got into the NES business through reverse engineering the hardware and software rather than, you know, doing it the more traditional way and just like working with APIs or whatever documentation was given to more traditional developers for the system. I feel like that kind of gave them a closer relationship to the to the hardware. Like they they had a better understanding of it and could push the hardware in ways that other studios couldn't. Yeah. Maybe I'm just making that up, no. but but it it seems to it seems to follow that first boss fight where it's like you're throwing things at the boss. You know, the, you are the boss. It's like an incredibly creative idea, but like te- technically speaking, it was also amazing. And even the the infamous speeder bike stage was like a technical marvel. Like like parallax scrolling, it was like super fast. It's just like I, yeah, I can definitely see what you're saying. I have a lot of nits to pick with um, with Battletoads in, in a design sense, but like on just a pure technical front, it is fantastic, <laughs> and it's it's really amazing to look at that game and see just how much creativity was invested in it. Like every stage is different than yeah. the last. I mean, there there's a couple of reprises of concepts, like you know you have the speeder bikes, and then later you have a water race, but it still plays a little differently. Like the mechanics of the speeder bike are different than the mechanics of the uh, the the jet ski or whatever you're flying on. I just wish it was play tested by humans instead of like whatever <laughs> space aliens came down and played it with their mind controls. Or well, that's, that's, that, that's very typical, rare. You know, that comes from from the old British mentality of you know kids were buying a game a month, so you know there was this expectation that that if you bought a game, it would have to last you a month and therefore would have to be absolutely rock hard. Um, otherwise, you'd finish it in a few days and then feel bitterly disappointed and wouldn't wouldn't want to play anything again or wouldn't be able to play anything again until you got your next game the following month. Yeah, I I beat Battletoads back at the time, but I don't think I could do it today. I just don't mm, think I have the I'm patience. I'm impressed that you did it back then. You know, it was it was really a matter of like in those later stages where you're racing, you know, the rat with the bomb. Like oh, you have to geez. know every move you make. You <laughs> yeah. have to like basically feel the the maze instead of and instead of memorizing it. Like it has to become part of your body, and you have to know exactly when you're going to fall off a ledge and how quickly you should pull back to the other direction. It's it's just completely it's crazy. And I, I think the game like they just assume no one would get to a certain point with two players. I think because the game I think like automatically kills a second like or two players can't progress together after yeah, a certain there, point. A, I wish I knew the specifics. I, but. I don't know that they. Assumed that I think they I just, just never tested it that far. Yeah. yeah, but but you know that that one fact aside, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a crazy crazy game. How popular was it out here? I think it was pretty big. I don't know sales numbers on it, but it feels like it has a really great reputation, and people have a tremendous fondness for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the centerpiece of Xbox recent uh, whatever <laughs> yes. the hell that was. Like, I've got a Battletoad shirt on. Well, I mean, it's it's been kind of this running joke for a long time. You know, call call GameStop and ask to reserve the new Battletoads game, even though, of course, there hasn't been a Battletoads game since, like, 1995. <laughs> but... Yeah, I feel like I feel like that game was kind of the last big NES hit. You know, there was Super Mario Brothers three, and then there was Battletoads, and then hey, here's the Super NES. It was certainly like front and center on Nintendo Power. You know, just like I mean, they were the hit makers essentially, but I think it worked. I mean, all my friends played Battletoads. We were all Ninja Turtle heads, so of course this was the next thing. I mean, it was inferior to Ninja Turtles in terms of the characters and their deep uh, relationships with each other and the the rich lore, but. It was still, you know, green things beating the crap out of other things. So. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very much cut in, in terms of story and characters. It was very much cut from that um, 
that 90 or the late 80s thing where everyone was trying to kind of capitalize on Ninja Turtles. You know, yeah. Like, uh, what was it? The the Street Sharks. <laughs> no, the adolescent um, adolescent radioactive pachyderms oh. or whatever. I thought I was thinking of immature oh radioactive God. samurai slugs. There is from, immature uh, radioactive samurai slugs. Yeah. There, they love to trash criminals and terrorize thugs. Yeah. Um, but there were there were like hamsters and pachyderms and I can't remember what else. And this was just one of of many of those things um, that you know like the. All of them kind of missed the point that Ninja Turtles itself was a parody yeah. to begin with, yeah. but um, I don't. I don't think that any of those knockoffs ever hit anywhere near as big as as uh, TMNT. But I would say Battletoads, at least as a video game, came pretty close to being, you know, uh, to holding its own, to having its own little bit of legacy. But as a, as a property, as like a multimedia property, it was. Garbage. Yeah, it's weird that they, uh, as popular as we're assuming it was, they couldn't sell a cartoon. There is a pilot for a cartoon. Well, all the the, tr- the the villainous is a dominatrix. Yeah. It's not really that's true. They could make her wear more clothes, but all, of all the trash that was on TV when I was a kid, I'm surprised they couldn't even get a Battletoads cartoon on the air. I mean, it, it could have been bad, but we would have watched it. You know, Earthworm Jim had a game, damn it, or a cartoon. That's a pretty good cartoon, actually. Yeah, was it? It was good. Can we take a break? I was just going to say. That's that's kind of how video games sort of adapted after uh, after that anyway. Like the the natural evolution of the the medium becoming easier, becoming more attainable. Um, which you know, we talked about this in a recent episode. You know, just the fact that there was greater storage capacity, greater memory capacity in games meant the games could be bigger. They could have more content. And they didn't have to pad out the uh, the. The playtime by making it just excruciatingly difficult. It mm. could be like it's a, it's got more playtime because there's more stuff to do. Yeah, not not the same thing over and over again until you hate life. And that game is actually a '93 release, which is incredibly late for an NES game. Oh, Battletoads! Yeah, yeah, Dragons, yeah, yeah. Two years after Battletoads, I believe. Was that was that it for the post Battletoads stuff that they did uh, on the NES? That I think that's the last game. Okay, period uh, they did for NES. Yeah. So that was kind of their victory lap. Yeah, I mean, it was a three. It was like multi. It was like Game Boy, NES, Super Nintendo. All it was a hit all three at the same time. I don't know if it. It was the same year, I think. Hmm. I remember them okay. showing up in stores the same time. Okay, hmm. like who asked for this? I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> so in, in that sense, it wasn't so much of an NES game as probably a Super NES game that mm. they sort of downsampled oh, to and, NES and Game Gear, Game Gear, and well. Mega Drive. Man, this is like uh, everything. Yeah, that was um, that was that was the next thing I was going to talk about was the fact that um, sort of around the time the Battletoads came out, Rare started to look into thirty two or thirty two. Yeah, they were really ahead of their times. <laughs> uh, they started to look into sixteen bit games. Wait, they developed a lot of thirty two X games, but they held on to them, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because they were just so far advanced. They yeah. knew they could, you know, produce Battletoads versus Double Dragons. Uh, no, they, um, you know, they they were very. Uh, very much in Nintendo's camp for a long time, but once the Genesis came out, they were pretty happy, I think, to diversify their development talents and efforts. So we saw... I can't remember all the games we saw in Genesis, but they started out with, you know, like conversions or upgrades or I don't know if they what they were like remakes sequels to Battletoads there were games on the 16-bit yeah, like, systems called Battletoads but I don't think they were the exact same game they weren't and even like Snake Rattle and Roll apparently had a Mega Drive version which I'm just I'm, I'm just learning about this now I had hmm. no idea 
Yeah, I, I don't know, Jazz. Did you uh, did you dabble in many of their sixteen bit games? I, I, I would think that because Genesis was sort of the breakthrough console in the UK, you might have. Uh, or were you in the US by that point? No, I was still in the, in, in the UK. I remember, you know, sort of uh, the ports of, of their earlier games coming out. Um, but you know, I think I think the, the I, 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 by the time I came out here, the, the, you know, Red kind of moved on to. The, the Donkey Kong countries of this world and 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 Killer Instinct, of course. Um, they did produce a Battletoads arcade game. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I heard right. about that and never saw it. Uh, that that was a I think it was a three player arcade game, kind of. Uh, Finally, get to control Zitz, Rash, and Pimple. Pimple. Yeah, one of them was missing. One of them was kidnapped in the first game. I think it was Rash. I don't care. Yeah, does, does it really matter? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> But um, I imagine the arcade game. I never actually played it. Uh, it would be slightly easier than the uh, the you know the the eight bit version. You could at least pay it to let you win. You know, <laughs> there's but, that going for it. But I think you know, to, to me, you know, the, those kind of flagship games that the, it was Killer Instinct and, and Donkey Kong Country that really kind of uh, you know set the benchmark. Yeah, for, and the the thing about those is those were both really late in the sixteen bit era. Rare kind of fell off the map. All altogether, I guess the experience that uh, Spectrum fans had in the late '80s, where they were like, "What happened to Ultimate Play the Game?" Uh, speaking as someone who was really impressed by Rare's games on the NES, I kind of wondered, like, what happened to those guys? They just kind of went away. Did they? Did they break up? Like, <laughs> did the company dissolve? No, I think they were just like hidden somewhere in Twicross. Is that how you pronounce the name of the town? Yeah, Twicross. Twicross. Okay. Twycross uh, in their their little studio, um, ticking away at SGI machines and, and making Donkey Kong Country. I have no idea how long that game took to develop. I don't know that they've ever said, but it couldn't have been you know just an overnight thing. They must have put years into that, getting the graphics to work and and figuring out how to debabelize them for the the sixteen bit system and just turning that into a video game and not just a tech demo. I don't know how that partnership with Nintendo happened. Does anyone know how, like, was it, well, like, another thing, like, they approached them kind of deal, like, look what we can do with this technology. I've never read anything along those lines. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I mean, if you look at um, Star Fox, which was developed by another UK studio, right, Argonaut, yeah. I mean, that was pretty much, they developed X for... Um, for Game Boy, which was just like this crazy first-person shoot 'em up for 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 the Game Boy, like how do you do it's that? It's amazing. It's amazing. It's crazy. And um, I think in the process, they were also developing the FX chip uh, or co-developing it. But in any case, they you know whatever happened there, I don't know the exact uh, timeline, and I'm sure Dylan Cuthbert could tell us if he were here, but he's not. Um, that that sort of you know got them in good with Nintendo to make Star Fox, um, and I I have to imagine, and this is you know all speculation, but I have to imagine that uh, Donkey Kong Country happened because Rare said, "Check out what we can do," mm. and you know it was this completely new technological approach to making video games. It was it was something no one had ever done. Um, I think the closest you'd ever really seen was, you know, the occasional claymation game, like uh, Clay Fighter. Yeah, that's true. Where they would, you know, digitize and rotoscope clay. Um, and it, it was kind of the same concept of making a game that looked technologically advanced, even though 
in terms of what was actually running on the on the Super NES, it wasn't any more advanced. Like it wasn't a super advanced chip like the FX chip or anything like that. It wasn't. I don't think it even had a DSP chip. I think it was just a, a Super NES cart. But all the technological shenanigans were done in advance. They were done on the development side uh, to make the graphics, you know, really maximize uh, the, the capacity of the Super NES. It's like if you ordered a steak and someone just cut you out a really nice picture of a steak and gave it to you on a plate. Like, look what we did. It's it's not even that. It's I don't I don't even know. It's hard how to, to make uh, a metaphor for yeah. it. Yeah, I was trying to think of a so, way to do it. So yeah, I mean, basically, Donkey Kong Country looks like a game that is running in in three D. Yeah, like on the Super NES. That of course that's a, a total fake out. It's not. It's just a sprite based game like any other. But what they did was instead of drawing the bitmaps by hand. They rendered them on a computer in 3D, and then took those images, uh, you know, the the outputted images, and turned those into sprites. So there was 3D modeling happening. It just wasn't happening on the Super NES. It was happening before the Super NES. Yeah. And I really think the the signal degradation that would happen when you were hooking up your Super Nintendo through like an RF switch, which a lot of people did, or just a composite cable, would sell the effect better because all that stuff was just being smeared with like a layer of like fuzz. So you couldn't see that, oh, these are just sprites, you know. The, the, you could literally think the Super Nintendo was making these CGI characters dance around or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, this is one of those cases where the limitations of technology at the time kind of worked toward the game's favor. And and also, how many of us had ever actually played a game in actual 3D at that point? Like <laughs> a game with real polygons. There was Star Fox there was on a Super NES. Pterodactyl Madness or whatever the there hell that was. was. You know, Sylphid on, uh, on Sega CD. And, and actually, Sylphid might be the best... Um, sort of progenitor of Donkey Kong Country because it had polygon models uh, and it was flying over what looked to be, you know, a 3D landscape, but that was all pre-rendered. That was rendered in advance as mm-hmm. 3D and then you had the polygons flying over top of it. So it was basically, you know, just the next generation version of those old arcade games where you had like a, a belt of a, of a road yeah. scrolling <laughs> and yeah. you were That's right. controlling That's right. a little car and a stick. It was it was basically the same thing, but you know, done with technology to to make it look more convincing. I don't know what the date on Silphied was, though. Maybe it came mm. after Donkey Kong Country. I, I, I don't know that one off the top of my head, but it was you know, probably around the same time. But it, it was again, you know, just kind of like visual shenanigans to create a platformer that looked like it belonged on the 32x, if not you know the Saturn or PlayStation. The, the Sega CD Silphied, right? That was ninety three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, prior to DKC. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a large part of, of what Nintendo wanted to do at the, that point was to, to you know, push the Super Nintendo as far as it could go. It was staring at the PlayStation sort of, you know, in the face at that point. Uh, PlayStation had just been released. And, uh, and I think it wouldn't surprise me if Nintendo actually had some sort of directive too rare to produce something that really was, that, that did feel next generation. It could be. I mean, it could be that they looked at what Rare had done in the 8-bit era and said, can you do that for us? Can you make something that has the impact of Battletoads on Super NES? And, you know, maybe that's that's what happened instead of Rare coming to them and saying, hey, check out this tech demo. Or maybe it was one of those cases where Nintendo was like, oh, God, we really need something to really give <laughs> us the edge over Genesis. Sega's eating our lunch. This is terrible. And Rare came in and said, hey, look, check out this tech demo. And they said... 
please take <laughs> Donkey Kong and, and remake him. Like, I mean, I, I don't think it was an accident that this was a Donkey Kong game because Donkey Kong was Nintendo's first hit. And I think this was kind of, you know, meant to be relaunching Donkey Kong, relaunching Nintendo in a way. This was the game that really finally gave the Super NES a leg up over the, the Genesis and the West uh, because up until then it had been a very close call. Uh, even even with you know Street Fighter Two exclusivity, uh, with the Nintendo frittered away with uh, bloodless Mortal Kombat, <laughs> it was a it was a it was a close race, and Donkey Kong gave them the edge that they needed those past three years. Yeah, and I I just can't stop thinking of everything that Donkey Kong inspired. Like everything, everyone was doing that after Donkey Kong, especially. I mean, Nintendo. I don't know who to trust about this, but the pressure to make Yoshi's Island a, a pre-rendered game. Um, and then we see some possibly evidence of that in the intro cutscenes, which I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so glad the game doesn't look like that. But then we have uh, Mario RPG, and that is an isometric game, and it's pre-rendered. So they're trying to sell the illusion of, like, 3D and depth and, like, you know, little computer people that aren't sprites even more with that game. And mm. you can't play that game in HD. I'm sorry, folks. You need to uh, just, like, I don't know. Get some get some goggles, put some Vaseline on, then you're, yeah. you're safe after that. <laughs> yeah, and, and and like I said, you know, um, our our comparison, our basis for comparison as console gamers uh, for 3D gaming was Star Fox, which was like chunky triangles flying through an inky blackness. Mm-hmm. Like by comparison, Donkey Kong Country and then Mario RPG, those just looked so. They had so much depth and so much vibrance, and they just seemed alive, like you could reach into the screen mm. uh, in a way that no other game had managed before. I, I still remember, um, I, I guess I guess another predecessor progenitor would be Myst, which was, I think, 1993. Um, and I remember the village, like the treetop village in Donkey Kong Country really reminded me of Myst. But it just felt more vital. It felt more like a living world as opposed to mist, which was the, this kind of beautiful painting you could right. walk through. Things were moving in, in right. DC. And not only that, but it just it didn't seem sterile. Like there was this kind of museum austerity to to mist. Like everything is beautiful, but don't touch. <laughs> Whereas Donkey Kong, you know, it 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 didn't look maybe you know natural, but it it seemed lived in. It seemed like you were you know romping your way through trees and rocks and boulders and dirt like it was you know the jungle so it was it was a pretty impressive illusion for the time i i never actually beat the game because it turns out the game itself is a little bit boring and <laughs> and i know it has a lot of fans and that's fine i think you know most people agree that the sequels are better but it just it never really grabbed me i i loved the way it looked but i just kind of lost interest midway through I, I fell for the marketing, and I played it, and I enjoyed it, but I it didn't stick with me like something like Mario World did or something like Yoshi's Island did. It might be fair, unfair to compare that game to some of the best games ever made, but, I mean, they were working in the same genre on the same platform, and it's hard not to. Uh, I kind of never tried the sequels because I just was like, this game didn't do much for me, and I don't like these characters very much. I was also super annoyed by the uh, the water level because it just threw me back to the Battletoads water level and uh-huh. TMNT's water level. I was like, oh, not this crap again. <laughs> it's a lot more manageable than that. It is, but it just, you know, Two PTSD. bad memories, yeah.
So, um, I did. Did you? Res- uh, sorry. So, did you review DKC at the time, Jazz? No, I. I at that point, I'd uh, just left the UK and I was out here. I was working at Virgin. Okay, so you'd you'd be you'd changed sides at that point. I had was indeed. I was working on things like Jungle Book and uh, Lion King and Aladdin. So DKC was your competition. Yeah, we did. Um, Looked at that really, you know, to to see what Rare were actually, you know, up to, and I think, you know, at that point it was just they'd set the bar so high that, you know, most companies didn't even have the 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 technology to be able to compete with what they were doing. You know, it's um, as Jeremy said, you know, the, the, these these levels just looked absolutely incredible. It looked looked three D. You know, when you compared it to a lot of thirty two X games, these the DKC looked like the superior product, and and I think they they did you know did a bang up job on on, on really extending the life of the of the Super Nintendo. I, I guess working at uh, Virgin on Disney games, you kind of had an out. You didn't have to compete head on with the look of Donkey Kong Country because you were working on games that were you know meant to look like Disney cell animation. So, so like it would have been inappropriate to have that three D modeling look. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we were doing really was just trying to sort of get an understanding of their level design and that mm. kind of thing. And uh, you know, and I think you know, you, you said it, Donkey Kong Country. You know, it's it's a nice game, but it's not it's not a classic, rare game. You know, I, th- I think you, you know you can almost feel the sort of the all the effort was put into making sure that it looked a certain way, and that you know even certain design elements and screen layouts were done to make the most of the graphics as opposed to make the most of the gameplay. Mm-hmm. Not to, not to linger too long, but it's always annoyed me how they kept those designs when they just feel <laughs> so rooted in the limitations of character modeling in 1993. Like, they've made changes, and I've even asked uh, Tanabe, the guy who was on Jungle Freeze or Tropical Freeze, like, have you considered changing Donkey Kong? He's like, oh, we have. It's like, I really can't tell. It's like you made him less menacing-looking and less, like, dead-eyed, but I just don't like how those characters look anymore. I prefer, like, the 2D Donkey Kong. I just, I want, I don't like how he looks. It just, it it looks like a relic from the 90s to me. Yeah, a little bit. Um yeah, so I, I guess um, Donkey Kong Country was kind of the the natural lead-in to uh, Rare's final 16-bit game, which was Killer Instinct. Did that start as an arcade game? I, um, I, God, I believe like it, it did. did. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because they're like, we're bringing the combat home, and combat had a K in it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and that was another one that looked really... No, I can't even say that. Like, I, I always thought Killer Instinct was kind of ugly looking. Like, I, I hated the character designs. Yeah, even even it was, re- reading. It was, oh, sorry. Oh, even reading Image Comics in that era, I was like, breasts don't look like that. I, I must object, it was, sir. It wasn't even that. It was just all the characters. Yeah. I guess it's it's nice for uh, you know old school fans that they brought Saber Wolf back. Oh man! But, Wait, uh, this is like. <laughs> is there like a skeleton, a werewolf, and a dinosaur in this game? I think so. As fighting yes. characters. Yep. I'm I'm not up on my mo- uh, Killer Instinct lore. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not that up on it either. I mean, I just remember the game coming out and it just feeling like a. You know, sort of a bit of a poor man's Mortal Kombat, basically. I mean, it was a midway game, and obviously, you know, there was probably some sort of uh, cross-pollination of design. Um, but they were going for that, you know, they've just dated very much now, that sort of, you know, videographic style, uh, sort of hyper-realistic, and it just, it these days looks just horribly pixelated and yeah. ugly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's totally fair to make a comparison to Mortal Kombat, because Mortal Kombat digitized 
film of, of uh, human actors, Killer Instinct just digitized pre-rendered output of, of 3D models. So it's kind of the same technology just used to present something slightly different. Um, and I, I know like Nintendo really tried to sell us on the the combo concept, but mm. <laughs> I remember reading about the game and just thinking like this doesn't make any sense. Why do I have to memorize the like this long string of buttons to press? Why can't I just you know play it like Street Fighter Two where I react to things and kind of go on the spur of the moment? So it just never appealed to me in terms of of a concept for a fighting game. And compared with the or compared with the uh, the really kind of gross visuals, just that, that series never did anything for me. But it, I guess it was pretty popular. It seems to have uh, sold pretty well. It's, it shipped with uh, Killer Cuts, I believe, which was the soundtrack uh, well, album. That would explain it. <laughs> All those hip Euro beats uh, pounding your ears. Better yeah. than Shaq Fu. Yeah, it was. It, I think part of the issue was just that that you know they sort of pre-rendered all of these graphics and and the way that the game worked was you know literally you'd you'd be putting in you know the, these combos to 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 make the animation work so so you were sort of essentially driving the animation <laughs> uh, as opposed to playing a fighting game and uh, i i mean i just i did not like it at all at the time i think actually i think that's like all high level fighting games it's just like reading frames of animation it's like not actually having fun just like okay now he's on frame 3 of the kick you know now we launch into this but they made that essential i think you yeah, know I mean, as part of the game and in in a different way not so much in like a respond to what's happening way but like predetermine what's happening. Yeah, that, yeah. That's the whole combo breaker thing. Like someone's just sitting there dialing in a combo and you have to figure out where you can uh, sort of assert yourself. I think Dead or Alive did that a lot better with like reversals mm. and, and that sort of thing. Like that was much more of a reactive kind of video game. Um, but, you know, Killer Instinct was trying to look 3D despite its limitations. I, I guess I can understand why they did what they did, but I don't think it was really, in my opinion, a success. But But I definitely feel like Rare kind of had this sort of like uh, second wind in the N64 era. Like their oh, their God, output yeah. increased considerably and pretty much not quite everything, but almost everything that they produced for N64 was great. Like did really well in terms of sales and also in, in terms of reviewing. Uh, you know, Donkey Kong Country, like that trilogy did really well for them on, on the 16-bit system, well, on, on Super NES. But that was that was really kind of all they did during the 16-bit era uh, of yeah. note. Uh, but um, but in 64, like they really they kind of brought it home. And uh, just looking at the games they produced, you know, GoldenEye 007, um, Diddy Kong Racing, Banjo Kazooie, Banjo Tooie, Conquer, um, Blast Core. Oh, oh yeah. Blast Core! Everybody Blast wants that yeah, to come back, right. and I totally agree. It's like a concept that I, I really want to return. Yeah, like that's, you know, half a dozen really solid games. Um, there was also Killer Instinct Gold. Yeah. There was also uh, Jet Force Gemini, which I've never really heard much good about. But, you know, like two two iffy games compared to six really good ones. That's quite a uh, quite an impressive output. And, and their games were kind of at the cutting edge in a lot of ways of, of N64 visuals. A lot of times what they did was they took, you know, sort of Nintendo-developed concepts – and you know, took them to the next level in terms oh, of visual sure. presentation, yeah. in terms of scale. Like Diddy Kong Racing was Mario Kart, but now it actually had 3D models for the characters instead of those little pre-rendered sprites. And you didn't just have a racing car; you had a boat, you had a, an airplane. 
It really outdid Mario. I mean, I, I don't like the characters again, but I feel like Diddy Kong Racing is a better game than Mario Kart 64 just because of the versatility, uh, how many different ways you can approach tracks, the adventure mode, all that stuff. It really made Nintendo's offering look kind of like weak in comparison. Yep. Oh, and I forgot to mention Perfect Dark, mm. which um, was probably the graphical high watermark for the system. Maybe, maybe if you had the RAM card, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, that was Unless that was were, kind of a given. Yeah. Did it require the RAM card? I believe so. Do you know? No, I'm not sure. No, I just enhanced it. And from what I heard about GoldenEye, it's like the company considered it like to be a possible failure. And like it's weird. It's so quaint to think like, okay, GoldenEye the movie came out in like December 95. GoldenEye the game came out like August 97. Like remember GoldenEye, that movie from two years ago? It'd be like getting – what was the movie from two years ago? Anyone? I don't – were there movies two years I ago? I don't know. Uh, tw- what's movie in 2013? Help me out. Uh – what did I see? Look at us pop culture experts here <laughs> being stumped by well, movies from two years please ago. Please get this it's out. Like, it's like, a, well, I would say Avengers, but um, that's kind of a, a property that exists outside of, uh, hmm. outside of. But film. you, but you know what I it's mean. It's like getting an Inception video game. Yeah. N- now, now, if you don't launch alongside of the property, you're dead. Like, it, it's just so quaint to think of an era where a game could come out two years after the movie, and it would be like, oh yeah, Goldeneye. Well, and Goldeneye is interesting because that was Rare's first first-person shooter. That was not something that they specialized yeah, in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can you can look at Donkey Kong Country and say, oh, sure, yeah, of course, platformer. Banjo-Kazooie, sure, platformer. Like, that's what they do. That was kind of always their forte. But GoldenEye, you know, they, they jumped into the Doom clone and uh, did a bang-up job. Like, people love both the single-player mode and also the multiplayer, which, uh, you know, kind of introduced... Uh, the split screen approach. I guess maybe there were some other games that did that, but they sucked. Um, yeah, Duke Nukem sixty four. Yeah, like they they did it well, and uh, they had a lot of interesting modes. They had even more interesting modes planned, but had to cut them for licensing rights or you know. For... Aren't they still in the game? Aren't those Bond actors' faces yeah, still I in think the game? So. I thought so. I, I don't think the camera mode is in the game though, where you can take a photo of your face and put it on. Uh, the, I thought that was enemy. Perfect Dark that did that. Uh... Sorry, I, I knew I thought it was like post Columbine, so that's why the thing was cut out. Okay, yeah, maybe I was getting all mixed up. Hmm. Oh well, that's but cool. yeah, it was um, it was kind of one of those pioneering uh, first person shooters, uh, along with you know somewhere between Quake and Half Life. There was perfect, or there was a GoldenEye 007. It's weird that uh, there's never been a remake. It feels like regardless of how much money you have to pay the Broccoli family or whatever. <laughs> I feel like everybody of a certain age would just automatically get that and grab it. And even if they played for five minutes, they'd just be like, I've got my, my pure strain nostalgia fix. Like, this is what I wanted. Yeah, and um, wasn't Ken, doesn't Ken Lobb, who helped uh, kind of guide that game, doesn't he work at Microsoft now, which is where uh, Rare is? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he does. So, yeah, it seems like kind of a, an obvious connection. But I guess, I guess it having been on Nintendo's system... I don't no, know how I that works. I don't think that. Yeah, yeah. they, they like did Banjo Kazooie yeah, and Banjo Kazooie, Perfect yeah. Dark, or not Perfect Dark, but um, Conquer on uh, XBL. Perfect Dark's so. on XBLA as well. Oh, is it? Yeah. The original. Mm-hmm. Well, how about that? I did not. Anything know can happen with money. <laughs> but um, yeah, Perfect Dark also kind of pioneered some of the, some of the uh, control concepts that were became standardized with Halo. Like that was an early hmm. early take on that. Not I didn't quite, know that. Not quite refined enough to really set the stage and, and become the standard, but but uh, definitely a precursor of what uh, Bungie did. So kind of a kind of a big deal. Um, and actually, when you look at it, uh, during the N64 era, Nintendo basically 
had like two big games per year. <laughs> and most years, one of their big games was a rare game. Like 97 was... Uh, Goldeneye. Right, Goldeneye and Mario Kart. Mm-hmm. 98 was Ocarina of Time and Banjo-Kazooie, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I forget where Diddy Actually, Kong falls maybe, into that. Maybe Banjo-Kazooie was 80, 98. But yeah. Donkey, anyway, Donkey Kong 64 was 99. Oh, right, mm. I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah, so they were kind of sorry, I'm, I'm a little muddled with my chronology here, but they were definitely a big part of Nintendo's content mix, which made their defection to Microsoft uh in the following era a little bit of a surprise. They they managed to put out one GameCube game. Yeah. And then uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if you could characterize it as them jumping ship or Nintendo saying, yeah, go ahead and buy these guys. It's fine. Because Nintendo had a big stake in Red Rare at that point. And I believe uh, Microsoft paid like into the <laughs> it was hundreds of millions. Like hundreds 370 million, I think. And it for was, that? It was unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, time. and what did they make? Like immediately after that decision, it was like, okay, uh, we made grab by the ghoulies. So have fun with that. <laughs> that was a wise decision. Yeah, the, the post-N64 era... Um, it hasn't really been good to Rare. I, I want to know what happened. Did, is it like a loss of leadership? Did something happen within the company? Um, are well, there the any Stampers insiders? left in 2007. So the company's founders departed as very, very rich men in 2007. I bet, yeah. And, you know, two people aren't the only people who work at a, at a, at a company. Oh, yeah. But, you know, they were with the company from the very beginning. So you you have to imagine that their departure had a had a toll especially for a a company that has such a a closed and tight-knit internal culture like but, it, but even prior to that like five, i would say 5 years before that was like when they started making bad bad games on the whole like with Star Fox Adventures and then everything post GameCube well, see Star Fox Adventures is one of those cases where it's kind of easy to point to publisher interference because that started out as Dinosaur Planet. Yeah, and, and Nintendo was like, no, actually, take away the lizards, put in foxes, okay? Thanks. <laughs> um, so that game changed a lot, I think, in, in terms of its nature because Nintendo was like, oh, yeah, we want to do this as, as our own first-party game. Um, and that was that was their GameCube creation. A lot of the stuff that they put on Xbox initially, like Grab by the Ghoulies, started life, and I think, and Cameo also started life as GameCube games or even N sixty four games. Yeah, I think the the three sixty generation seemed to promise like a new era of Rare, like the return of Rare. But outside of a few games, that really wasn't the case. Like Viva, Viva Pinata, I'm not a fan. I don't I don't get it. But I understand why the appeal is there. Yeah, a lot of people really like that. But and that the, seems to be kind of like the one. <laughs> 360 game that people love, like Some Perfect Dark like Zero, yeah. did not go over. No, well. no, no. Wall, what was like Wall Guy, the the famous meme. But even even beyond that, I know, I like, know. The game itself, you know, just lacked the openness and freedom of uh, the original Perfect Dark, and probably because it was rushed for launch. I, I never played much of it, but I think that Banjo Kazooie racing game was pretty inventive and oh, interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like. Yeah. Uh, some people, bolt. some people were like put off by how much work it made you do, but I thought that was kind of cool, and I, I really want to play it someday more than just a demo. Even in the uh, 
the post Nintendo era, you know, once they went over to Microsoft, Rare was still kind of they kind of did their own thing. Like they were making games for Xbox 360 and Xbox, but they were also making GBA and DS games. In fact, they made they made some really weird GBA games. That, like, <laughs> they 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 remade Saber Wolf. Yeah, yeah. There was a game called It's Mr. Pants. I don't even know what that is about. First of all, we need to be introduced <laughs> to Mr. Pants. Then right. you can tell us he's here. You know. It's well, I think that was, you know they were, they were they were being very English, and you know you were talking about publisher interference earlier, and you know some sometimes a lack of publisher interference interference is the wrong word, but you know influence Oversight. we say yeah can can result in in in, in games not not being put together correctly or just being too English. Because um, Banjo-Kazooie was a very, very English game. I don't know how it was received out here, but it, it's kind of, it's, its humor was kind of obscure. Yeah, it's, I, I personally find it a little bit grating. It's, it's strange how, like, we just were talking about how uh, games were made to remove, uh, games were localized to remove their Japaneseness in a lot of cases, but it's like, I guess people were not as upset over bizarre Two Americans, UK references that had they had no, they had no stake in. They had no idea like what some of these words even meant. You know, like being like a literary guy, I was like, oh, I, I've read like Dickens and all this, all these like British authors, so I know what these words mean. But I can imagine a kid being like, what? Well, I, I think that actually kind of lends to the fantasy nature of something when you know you're yeah. seeing terms tossed around that seem archaic or like kind of familiar, but I don't quite know what it means. That, that lends a sense of exoticism to it. It was a very storybook kind of game, so yeah. I can see that. Yeah, so so I think it works in that respect. But, but Grab by the Ghoulies is, is a very disgusting title <laughs> that is like, we know what it means, right? Do we need to tell our listeners? Uh, I don't actually know what it means. Ghoulies are testicles, correct? You are correct, oh. yes. Yeah. The family jewels. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> I didn't know that. Is that is grabbed by the ghoulies jazz like an expression that means like you were scared? Is that like a or like shocked or startled or no? It's it. it I mean, it's just it. It's a single entendre in many respects. At least <laughs> it certainly would be in in the UK. You know, it's just grabbed by the nuts and wow, you got me by the balls. That'd basically. be amazing if they just released the game as grabbed by the nuts. <laughs> well, there was a. Ratchet and Clank going commando. That's yeah. probably the closest we'll ever see. They st- they ran out of like PG-13 double entendres, so they just kind of stopped doing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once the uh, once the stampers left, uh, if that's kind of when Rare went into connect mode uh, and became sort of Rare's uh, studio for making connect games, connect sports, and connect adventures, and also doing the... Uh, the avatars for Xbox 360 characters, like yeah, the, which still persist on Xbox One. Yep. Yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, the the company really it just seems like I don't really know what's going on over there. I mean, that's always been the case, but uh, you know, when when they're producing great games, it's no problem. Like, oh, well, they've been quiet, but here's a bunch of great games, so that's fine. But you know, they're quiet and not much is really happening. But but I guess you know, in talking about rare over the past hour and change we've kind of touched on the fact that they seem to go silent periodically mm-hmm. like they went quiet after the ultimate play of the game days and then resurfaced on NES then they kind of went quiet in super NES days and resurfaced with Donkey Kong Country so maybe this is just one of those lulls where they're sort of regrouping and they're going to emerge from from their great <laughs> slumber and the wow, it's all again. Well, one wonders if if they 
if if they were working on a bunch of Kinect games, and you know, since Microsoft seems to have just walked away from that, yeah. brushing its hands, um, whether or not there's had there had to be a you know a big internal shift in resources and yeah, and that's games. also possible. I'm kind of on Jazz's side with this uh, because. Um, I feel like we talked about how they took risks in the past and they paid off. Well, maybe Kinect was the one risk that didn't pay off. Maybe it paid off initially, but now they – maybe there was some grand idea for a Kinect game that actually would work and would be innovative and would not just be mini games or whatever. But maybe we'll just never see it now. So yeah. maybe that's what was in the works. And, and you know, over and above that, there there has been a lot of talk, a lot of rumors, a lot of insider reports about how over the past decade Rare's internal culture has been very divided Maybe even longer than the past decade, um, but but just the fact that there's like the teams that are cool working on the cool stuff, and then the teams that aren't cool not working on the cool stuff. So, you know, they have like basically, I think several different buildings, and everyone is sequestered in their own building. <laughs> so within the culture, even there's a lot of secrecy. Like one house may not know what the other is doing. It's it doesn't seem like a necessarily the the ideal approach to creating a sense of unity but what do i know if you if you want to hear about the culture of rare in its heyday or rather it's n64 heyday i recommend you go online uh the director of conquer's bad fur day has is doing a let's play or has done a let's play i don't know if it's finished or not but it, oh yeah he tells you all about like what it was like working at rare um what like certain characters are based on certain personalities in the office just like just like the everything about developing an n64 game for rare in like the late 90s it's really interesting that is really cool yeah i have to check that out it's great i mean you do have to watch conquer's bad for a day but you know, it's worth it it's hmm. not it's not the worst thing in the world yeah that's interesting um that's definitely worth checking out so that that kind of is the the sum total of rare um, from a something of an outsider's perspective. Um, any any final thoughts? Just interesting to see what they're going to do next. You know, I mean, obviously, like you said, the the company's in, in its quiet period at the moment. Um, you know, it produced Killer Instinct, which is nothing really wrong with it. Um, Did they? I thought that was Iron Galaxy and um, mm. uh, crap. What was the other? Uh, D- double helix? Yes. It might have been. Uh, I, I think I think that's just a property that Microsoft owns because they own Rare and I don't I don't know that Rare had any direct developers with Killer li- uh, listed our double helix games, Iron Galaxy, Rare and Microsoft Studios. So okay, who, who so knows? Rare was yeah, working on it, yeah. but yeah, the the combination there is Yeah, who knows. But uh, you know, they're sitting on a lot of interesting old properties which they probably never bring back up to date again. So, <laughs> you know, who knows what they're going to do next? Yeah, I imagine we will see the return of something people have nostalgia for soon. I mean, Killer Instinct. I don't know if Banjo and Kazooie are dead, or maybe it's it's time for Conquer to come back. Like the in this age that we need him so dearly. <laughs> well, I think they kind of tried to bring Conquer back. And oh, I don't know that it really yeah, live and unloaded or reloaded I, or whatever. Oh, that's right. And then there was that press conference where it's like they had like a Conquer cameo. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah he's, just like, he's in that. World building game. I can't even remember its name. Um, Project Spark yes, or whatever. Yes. But th- like the audience did not react at right. all. It, it was, was just like, like dead, like a wet fart. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's probably it for Conquer. But but you know it, it is interesting because by all accounts, I haven't actually played the new version. But by all accounts, the new Killer Instinct is actually a really good fighting game, which is something I can't say for the old Killer mm-hmm. Instinct. So, you know, there is, there is something to be said for bringing back these old properties and kind of revisiting them with contemporary standards because, you know, if they can do that with Killer Instinct, which was not a good starting point, 
Um, you know, maybe they could do that with Battletoads or something that that has a little more vivacity behind it. Um, maybe maybe we'll see a Banjo Kazooie game that's an actual platformer again. Who knows? That'd be fun. Um, in any case, yeah, I I I don't know. I'm not really that big a Rare fan, but when I when I look back at them, I realize I did enjoy a lot of their games, and I just hate to see any studio with this much history kind of fade quietly into the night. I would really you know just love to see them roar back to life and uh, you know make their mark again. So here's fingers crossed. Maybe that Battletoads t-shirt tease at that Microsoft conference was uh, was leading up to something good. Maybe we will be calling GameStop to reserve the game and, <laughs> and not just as a joke. <laughs> not just the video, the, the Prince Albert in a can of video games. Huh. Anyway, uh, that I guess wraps it up for this rare episode. A little shorter than usual, but I feel like we covered the topic pretty effectively. Thanks in large part to Jazz being here to shore up our Sad Yankee lack of knowledge. Um, yeah, thank you so much. At least for the early years, yeah. you guys certainly know your stuff when it comes to the uh, post mid nineties. Well, that's us, Nintendo fans to the end, and everyone hates us for it. Yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so thanks, Jazz. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for listening. Um, those of you who are just enjoying the show, we appreciate it. Those of you who are enjoying the show a week early because you're supporting us on Patreon, we appreciate it even more. You're cool, and we love you. Um, so you can, you know, find Retronauts on iTunes under the name Retronauts. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram and well, maybe not Instagram, but YouTube and Twitch as Retronauts at Retronauts.com. You'll find stuff that we publish sometimes at US Gamer uh, as it happens. All of us work at US Gamer, so you can also find stuff that's not Retronauts that is by cool people who are on this podcast at USGamer.net. So please do that. Check us out at patreon.com slash retronauts and consider donating to us as we are a charitable and worthy cause. Um, as for myself, I am Jeremy Parrish. You can find me on Twitter as GameSpite and at US Gamer. I bet you knew that already. You <laughs> sly rascals, you. Jazz? Yeah, I'm Jazz Rignor. You can find me on Twitter at JazzRignor1Z. And you can also find me on usgamer.net. And I am Bob Servo on Twitter. Please tweet at me your favorite Battletoad. And I'm also on US Gamer, a senior editor, and I occasionally write for something awful every couple of weeks, so check me out on there as well. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next week for a micro-episode. And in the meantime, we're going to pad out this episode's running time with an endless loop of the Battletoads pause theme. Thanks.